Welcome to this week's episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. This episode explores four compelling topics, which include hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, a severe and potentially fatal systemic inflammatory syndrome, CAR T-cell therapy in follicular lymphomas, sickle cell anemia and sickle trait in thrombosis, and mutated calreticulin in myeloproliferative disorders. We begin with hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, HLH. Albatuni et al. have demonstrated the pleiotropic immunomodulatory effects by which the Janus kinase inhibitor ruxolitinib ameliorates hypercytokinemia and organ injury in murine models of both primary and secondary HLH. This groundbreaking demonstration of both gamma-interferon-dependent and gamma-interferon-independent effects has provided compelling preclinical data supporting the potential superiority of ruxolitinib when compared with gamma-interferon inhibition alone, and identified the previously under-recognized role of neutrophil cytotoxicity in the pathobiology of HLH-induced multi-organ dysfunction. HLH is a hyperinflammatory disorder characterized by massive immune cell activation, leading to severe multi-organ injury that culminates in mortality in up to 50% of affected children and adults. Immune cell activation can be triggered by infection, malignancy, or autoimmunity, and is propagated by primary or acquired defects in T-cell and natural killer cell cytotoxicity that preclude their ability to terminate the immune response. Hypercytokinemia is both the result and driver of immune cell activation. Most patients are treated based on the HLH-94 and 2004 protocols with dexamethasone and etoposide. While effective in a subset of patients, systemic toxicities are significant. The hypercytokinemia of HLH has become an attractive alternative therapeutic target. Albatuni et al. addressed the potential limitation of targeting a single cytokine as well as the possibility of toxicity when inhibiting multiple cytokines by evaluating whether JAK1-2 inhibition to block signaling of multiple cytokines is superior to single cytokine blockade of gamma interferon with a neutralizing antibody. Two important findings merit discussion. First, the use of JAK1-2 inhibition was clearly superior to gamma-interferon inhibition in reducing hypercytokinemia, immune activation, organomegaly, and death in these murine models of HLH. Teleologically, this is perhaps not surprising in that an anti-gamma-interferon antibody can serve as a sponge to decrease the amount of damaging cytokine present, while JAK1-2 inhibition is akin to turning off the faucet and blocking the effects of multiple cytokines. Second, Albatuni et al. identified a critical role of neutrophil-mediated tissue injury in the pathobiology of HLH. This endotype was improved with JAK1-2 inhibition, but not gamma-interferon inhibition. Interestingly, the poorer survival of mice treated with gamma-interferon inhibition was rescued by the addition of neutrophil-depleting antibodies, but not anti-IL-6 or anti-TNF-alpha antibodies. 
This supports a role for neutrophil activation in the pathobiology of HLH and highlights the possibilities of similarities between HLH-mediated organ injury and severe organ injury seen in other critical illnesses such as sepsis and acute respiratory distress syndrome. These findings suggest that targeting the myeloid compartment may have therapeutic benefit in HLH. However, the potential benefits of neutrophil inhibition in the acute stages of HLH will need to be balanced with the potential infectious consequences of long-term impairment of neutrophil function. Ultimately, the key to improving outcomes for patients with HLH likely depends on both mitigating immune cell activation and counteracting the mechanisms by which immune cell activation directly propagates fatal organ injury. Future clinical trials are clearly indicated. Next up, enthusiasm for the investigation of CAR T-cells in the treatment of hematologic malignancies continues to increase beyond the current U.S. Food and Drug Administration-approved indications of acute lymphocytic leukemia and several types of relapsed B-cell lymphomas, including diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma, high-grade B-cell lymphoma, and DLBCL that results from follicular lymphoma. Many studies have been reported and are instructive to compare. One of the first reports on the use of anti-CD19 CAR T-cell therapy in NHL was in a patient with follicular lymphoma, as reported by Kockendurfer and colleagues at the National Cancer Institute. This group subsequently reported on 22 patients with refractory or relapsed NHL, including two patients with follicular lymphoma and four patients with transformed follicular lymphoma who were treated with anti-CD19 CAR-modified T-cells. All six of the patients with follicular lymphoma or transformed follicular lymphoma responded, including five complete remissions, all of which were sustained. The majority of reports with anti-CD19 CAR T-cells have focused on diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. In addition, Schuster and colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania reported on 28 patients with refractory or relapsed NHL, including 14 patients with follicular lymphoma with their anti-CD19 CAR T-cell product CTL019. Among the 14 follicular lymphoma patients, 71% achieved a CR, and 89% of responding patients maintained their response without further therapy. Hirayama et al. report high, sustained responses in patients with relapsed or refractory follicular lymphoma treated with anti-CD19 chimeric antigen receptor-modified T-cells. The article in Blood Journal by Hirayama and colleagues from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center adds to the clinical experience of anti-CD19 CAR T-cells in patients with follicular lymphoma. They analyzed the outcomes of 21 patients, 8 with follicular lymphoma and 13 with transformed follicular lymphoma, who participated in a phase 1-2 trial that used a defined ratio of CD81 and CD41-CD19-specific CAR-modified T-cells. Similar to the report from the University of Pennsylvania, 
the response rate among the follicular lymphoma patients was high at 88%, all of which were sustained. In contrast, the response rate among the patients with transformed follicular lymphoma was only 46%, although all were CRs. The median duration of response in this cohort was 10.2 months. These latter results seem relatively consistent with the results from the Zuma-1 and Juliet clinical trials, which included 16 and 19 patients with transformed follicular lymphoma respectively. The Zuma-1 trial reported the outcomes of transformed follicular lymphoma in patients with primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma, and the Juliet trial reported outcomes in their diffuse large B-cell lymphoma population. Thus, an accurate assessment cannot be made regarding the effectiveness of anti-CD19 CAR T-cell therapy in this unique disease entity. There were important differences in the two patient cohorts in the article by Hirayama et al. Patients with transformed follicular lymphoma had a higher tumor burden, lactate dehydrogenase, and follicular lymphoma international prognostic index score on average. Another difference was in regard to the intensity of the lymphodepleting chemotherapy that was used before infusion. The majority of patients with follicular lymphoma, 62%, received a regimen that contained approximately double the amount of cyclophosphamide compared with the other two regimens that were used. Although there was no difference in CAR T-cell expansion among the three lymphodepleting regimens, the intensity could have affected overall response rates. Hirayama et al. have previously reported that progression-free survival was superior in patients who received higher-intensity lymphodepleting chemotherapy, although it was also dependent on achieving a favorable cytokine profile. There were significant differences in the intensity of the lymphodepleting chemotherapy used in the Zuma-1 and Juliet trials, which might explain the significant differences in overall response rates in the two trials. In fact, Seven patients in the Juliet trial did not receive any lymphodepleting chemotherapy before CAR T-cell infusion. The overall response rate in these patients was only 29%. Strikingly, 57% were observed to have progressive disease as their best response compared with 23% in the cohort that did receive lymphodepleting chemotherapy. These important observations contribute to the increasing amount of data related to factors that impact the effectiveness and toxicity of anti-CD19 CAR T-cell therapy. Taken together, they will help investigators develop experiments and trials to understand resistance to and enhancement of CAR T-cell therapies. Next, let's discuss sickle cell anemia and sickle trait and the risk of thrombosis. Each type of blood cell has its own independent function in immunity, hemostasis, or oxygen transport. But Faze and colleagues show that nature is far more efficient than that. They confirm the findings of others that venous fibrin clots entrap red cells. This phenomenon is especially prominent in clots involving sickle erythrocytes, consistent with the increased rate of venous thromboembolism observed in patients with sickle cell disease. They show that fibrin interacts with phosphatidylserine exposed on the senescent sickle red cell membrane. 
The entrapped sickle red cells make the attached fibrin more resistant to fibrinolysis by tissue plasminogen activator, exacerbating the prothrombotic effect. This is an unexpected way that sickle red cells modulate the clotting mechanism. They also contribute to a growing body of evidence that is naive and wrong to believe that leukocytes only fight infection, platelets only provide hemostasis, and erythrocytes only transport oxygen. Many cell types act across traditional functional boundaries. Monocytes express tissue factor that promotes thrombosis. Activated neutrophils can promote blood clot formation during inflammatory states, in large part involving formation of neutrophil extracellular traps, physical networks of DNA extruded from adherent neutrophils. Likewise, platelets play an important inflammatory role in malaria, autoimmune disease, and atherosclerosis. A role for erythrocytes in thrombosis has been proposed in several recent reviews. The products of hemolysis are also strongly implicated in promoting pathological vasoconstriction, endothelial adhesiveness, and platelet activation, especially in sickle cell disease. This interesting story gets even better. The researchers find that blood from sickle cell trait subjects confers TPA resistance intermediate between normal red cells and sickle red cells. This is relevant because several studies have revealed a modest but significantly increased incidence of venous thromboembolism, mainly pulmonary emboli, in the population of sickle cell trait carriers. Up until now, there has been no satisfactory mechanism to explain how sickle cell trait red cells might promote increased thrombotic risk. Although sickle cell trait is not a disease, there is some accumulating evidence it is a risk factor for some health outcomes, including pulmonary emboli. This new mechanistic finding by Faze and colleagues provides more credibility to the epidemiological findings in sickle cell trait. Not only is sickle cell disease a form of inherited thrombophilia, but also sickle cell trait may be a mild risk factor for venous thromboembolism. The implications and incidence of thromboembolism in sickle cell disease are increasingly appreciated, and more investigations are needed to develop best practices in these patients. However, given the high prevalence of sickle cell trait, the population impact could be stunning, even if the relative risk of venous thromboembolism is small. This is certainly an area for future investigation. Many hematologists might long for a simpler past when neutrophils, platelets, and red cells had distinct and separable functions. The reality is that the complexity of biological systems emerges when scientists develop more sophisticated and open-minded experimental approaches. There is abundant crosstalk and cooperation between the different types of blood cells in the circulation. And now, onto an inexplicably unexpected discovery. Exome sequencing has discovered that calreticulin gene mutations are important gain-of-function driver mutations in myeloproliferative neoplasms. Paquette et al. report that mutated calreticulin behaves like a rogue chaperone, usurping the role of JAK2 and promiscuously transporting immature or traffic-defective thrombopoietin receptors to the cell surface from the endoplasmic reticulum. 
Previous studies demonstrated that the lectin-binding domain and the neomorphic positively charged C-terminal tail of mutated calreticulin are essential for thrombopoietin receptor binding and activation. That mutated calreticulin must bind to the thrombopoietin receptor distal extracellular cytokine receptor homology domain as a homomultimer for JAK2 activation. That mutated calreticulin binds strongly to the thrombopoietin receptor, weakly to the GCSF receptor, and not at all to the erythropoietin receptor. And finally, that cell surface expression of the mutated calreticulin thrombopoietin receptors complex is mandatory for thrombopoietin receptor activation and JAK2 signaling. By itself, mutated calreticulin has no oncogenic or paracrine activity. Paquette et al. now demonstrate that the thrombopoietin receptor contains a hydrophobic patch in its distal cytokine receptor homology domain, which is essential for mutated calreticulin binding and is absent in the erythropoietin receptor, explaining the lack of erythropoietin receptor activation by the mutant protein. They also demonstrate that mutant calreticulin can transport incompletely glycosylated wild-type thrombopoietin receptor from the ER through the Golgi apparatus to the cell surface, as well as rescue from ER retention the thrombopoietin receptor MPLR102P, which causes congenital amegakaryocytic thrombocytopenia, as well as other ER traffic-defective thrombopoietin receptors. Importantly, Wild-type thrombopoietin receptor bound to mutated calreticulin could still respond to thrombopoietin, the plasma level of which is elevated in the MPN, whereas the thrombopoietin receptor's MPLR102P, once rescued, could respond to a thrombopoietin mimetic. The report by Biquette and colleagues suggests first that attention currently focused on inhibiting the ER chaperone function of JAK2V617F might be profitably engaged on inhibiting the chaperone function of mutated calreticulin. Second, the observation that the thrombopoietin receptor MPLR102P, when expressed at the cell surface, can be stimulated by a T-pomimetic implies that, in the future, calreticulin gene editing might be a useful strategy for correcting congenital amegakaryocytic thrombocytopenia. Finally, the expression of a neoantigen, mutated calreticulin, on the surface of MPNHSCs provides a rationale for immunotherapy in calreticulin mutation-positive MPN patients. Thank you for listening. For more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast.